The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The land of my old Kentucky home, mint juleps and derby day, bluegrass music, Kentucky kernels, Kentucky fried chicken. No state is more southern in its culture, and no state has been more loyal to its deep Confederate heritage. Just one problem, from 1861 to 1865, Kentucky stood by the Union. How did Kentucky come to secede after the war? and become the only posthumous member of the Confederacy. That's the story we'll discuss with Professor Ann Marshall, author of Creating a Confederate Kentucky, The Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a warm Friday afternoon in September, the last Friday of September 2011, uh, from the home base of Civil War Talk Radio, not the usual office in the Brewster building, so this week's legal disclaimer more sparse than ever. I'm not even using East Carolina University's telephone to bring this to you, but I suppose it's the middle of a work day and I ought to be there clocking in, so still not speaking on behalf of the university or the UNC system, or most specifically not its flagship school, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, whose football team tomorrow comes to Greenville to play our Pirates. We'll talk more about that momentarily, uh, but enough for the uh, legal disclaimer. Our guest, Shirley, will also speak for herself today, as always. Uh, a reminder to everyone to keep on top of 
Civil War Talk Radio doings through the website impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney gives the most recent developments in Civil War Talk Radio scheduling, as well as what's been on recently and in weeks past, and keeps that up as a labor of love. Feel free to find the donation button there and send uh, a few dollars to help defray the costs of the website or buy books for for me, your host, books about the Civil War primarily, but you know sometimes books about I don't know parakeets or rodeo clowns or whatever I'm interested in this week. But no, they're actually for books I'll read and talk about on the show uh, for the most part. Uh, so please consider doing that. Some folks have uh, sent uh, sent donations; they're always welcome. And uh, with your donations, suggestions as to what you'd like to hear on the show are equally welcome. Uh, some people are doing that through Facebook. You can find Civil War Talk Radio and Impediments of War, more specifically, on Facebook and see things there. Uh, some great comments have come in recently. I had uh, interesting correspondence with a listener who was uh, remarking on the old shows when we would often uh, put on the Civil War time machine, asking a guest uh, who he or she would like to meet for one hour if they could go back in time to the Civil War era. And uh, the, the listener said uh, that if he were ever on the show, the answer would be simple. It would, the answer would be uh, John Wilkes Booth, and he wouldn't need the whole hour. Five minutes would be enough. Uh, I thought that was a, a, a very interesting answer. Well, for people who will be on the show coming up, uh, first let me apologize for missing last week's show. Uh, uh, Professor Wayne uh, Shea, and I'm sure I'm saying that not quite right, but... He'll be, uh, was supposed to be on. He had a schedule mix up and I lost even more of my voice than, than you hear today, uh, and really couldn't have done the show anyway. So he has rescheduled for, uh, December. I think it's December 9th. We'll have him back on to talk about West Pointers, the old army, uh, in the war and tactics and how they developed. Very interesting subject. Uh, so he'll be back. Uh, next week, we've got Robert Winstra talking about uh, Iverson's brigade at the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, it is a, uh, a very interesting new book. Uh, sometimes the more micro-scale the book on a tactical matter, uh, the, the more wonders what, what the person does with the rest of their lives. But this one, uh, called The Rashness of That Hour, Politics, Gettysburg, and the Downfall of Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Iverson uh, will be, I think, a very interesting discussion. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. That's next week. And then on the 14th, uh, no, no live show, no new show. I will be in Chicago getting trained for the American Library Association. Let's talk about the Civil War grant program. I've uh, been... been uh, agreed to participate in this along with the New Bern Public Library, New Bern, North Carolina, and I'll be helping them with book discussions on a selection of books. Uh, Edward Ayers, who's been on the show, is leading this project across the nation. Different libraries will be putting on these book talks, and fortunately they are conducting this training session in Chicago, to which I've been asked to go, which will help me learn how to talk in front of other people about the Civil War which, after 200 shows of Civil War talk radio, I clearly clearly need to, to work on some. So I'll try and get over my shyness and learn how to actually speak about the Civil War to other people. Uh, wish me luck in that. 
on October 21, I'll be back here uh, with my new new ability to speak, apparently, and Joe Gladhar from uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to talk about General Lee's Army and many of his many other books. Uh, looking forward to that very much, and uh, other good shows coming up. Uh, of course, by that time, tomorrow night's football game between the East Carolina Pirates and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Tar Heels will be a distant memory, but right now it's quite the thing here in Greenville. People are all uh, buzzing about it, excited about it. It will be a full house, 50,000 screaming pirate fans all wearing black, I think, this week, or maybe purple. It's it's one of those one-sided rivalries where I don't know if Chapel Hill even is aware that they have a game scheduled for tomorrow night yet. Uh, East Carolina is very much the country cousin of uh, the main school in Chapel Hill, and uh, to them, I suspect we are just another non-conference game on the schedule. But to people here, it's a, a chance for vindication, a chance to uh, show those, those slick-talking city folks uh, what we're about here in the country. And speaking as someone with a degree from Harvard, which listeners know I like to comment on at every opportunity, it's really fun to play the country cousin role, the underdog, the uh, uh, the, the <clears throat> neglected uh, chip on the shoulder uh, uh, person from the other side of the tracks against the sophisticated uh, city city boys from Chapel Hill. So I'm I'm playing that role fully. I'm wearing my purple and gold tie to class today and doing doing it upright, and and we'll see how that goes uh, tomorrow night. If we lose by 40 points, which is not unlikely, uh, you won't hear any more about it on this show. You can watch ESPN and get the details. Well, enough about uh, intra-Southern conflict. Let's go back to the regional conflict of the American Civil War and our topic today. Uh, Talking again uh, about uh, specific things that happen, uh, well, within a given state, uh, but not North Carolina. Uh, Today's topic is Kentucky. And uh, our guest... Excuse me, I'm still working on the voice here. Uh, our guest has written about the creation of Confederate Kentucky, uh, Anne Marshall from Mississippi State University. Professor Marshall, are you there? I am. Uh, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I, how long have you been at Mississippi State, may I ask? This is the beginning of my sixth year here, so... Uh, of course, I'd have to be here a lot longer to, you know, to actually be considered a Mississippian, but they're tolerating me. <laughs> so. you're, you're still in the tourist phase. So you were not there in 2003 then, is that correct? No, no, I, I wasn't. I, I ask that because I, I interviewed there once when uh, the, the vaunted Professor Marzalak retired. Oh, right, okay. And I, I wondered if I had met you there, but you were not there yet. So. No, I was still at, in graduate school then, at the well, University I, of Georgia. I, I, <laughs> University of Georgia, well, that will tie in with, with uh, we've got some Georgians here, um, but it, I hope we can go by first names and even oh, if we sure. formally met, uh, please call me Jerry. Um, so you went to University of Georgia, um, Todd Bennett is in our department oh, here now. right, of uh, course, I remember Todd. And uh, before him, probably before your time, Karen Zipf and her... Her name is familiar, yes. She, she teaches uh, some, some Southern history and women's history. Um, and uh, uh, her husband as well teaches at a, a nearby 
University, a nearby college in Rocky Mount. Um, and so we have, uh, and I think he has Georgia roots. And then, well, many connections. It's always a small world, but it's good to have you here. Now, my first question I was going to ask you was, I'd written down here, uh, there's a story in the news today about uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and I was going to ask you an intricate and involved question about contemporary racial politics <laughs> that has nothing to do with... Catholic. Right. So I can put on my uh, sociologist hat that I'm not qualified to wear. <laughs> exactly. For, for our listeners, uh, uh, Anne and I have corresponded about this and, and how sometimes you do a phone interview, especially with people you don't know, and it's supposed to be about the Civil War, and they begin asking the most remote tangential questions for which uh, you're not prepared. It's happened to me, and I guess it's happened to you. Um, but no, let's start with uh, uh, Kentucky. You, you went to graduate school at Georgia. Were you interested in the Civil War at that time, or how did you come by this interest? Well, I have sort of been interested in the Civil War on and off, but I actually just knew, I, I grew up in Kentucky and went to college in Kentucky, uh, and I went to University of Georgia to, to study with James Cobb because I knew I wanted to do Southern history, and, and I figured, um, you know, he was really the person with whom I wanted to, uh, you know, learn how to, to do Southern history. And it actually wasn't until the second semester of graduate school, when I was fishing around for a topic for a historiography paper, that I really happened upon this idea of, you know, as E. Merton Coulter put it, Kentucky seceding after the Civil War. And so it's sort of a historiographical interest at first, and then quickly, as soon as I started doing the paper and doing the research and realizing that nobody had come up with a, what I thought was a sufficient answer, that I decided that it would actually be my dissertation as well. So people have noticed this before. Uh, your book is not the first to observe that Kentucky essentially joined the Confederacy after the war, but... Uh, but you say no one's come up with a sufficient answer. What, what have other people attributed this to? Well, I mean, until recently, people have sort of looked back. They came up with all kinds of what I would call sort of short-term, uh, sort of short-sighted answers. Um, you know, some people thought, oh, there was this sort of post-war, uh, you know, power vacuum in Kentucky, and so the Democrats came in and filled it, and the Democrats were dominated by these ex-Confederates, so then you get this you know, this sort of uh, Confederate identity. Other people looked back and said, oh, well, people, you know, unionists became very disenchanted with uh, the federal military presence in Kentucky, the suspension of all kinds of civil rights, um, and, and the way that they were treating loyal citizens, um, and that this grudge that they bore the federal government then became this post-war Confederate sentiment, um, and and there there are grains of truth to to both of those. But I was really interested as somebody who had grown up in Kentucky and could see sort of all of the public vestiges of this Civil War memory, namely all of the Confederate monuments and the you know Confederate plaques and really the sort of dominance of it. Um, you know, I could see that that had all come much later, uh, had lasted you know, had really started, actually, well past the time over which somebody would have carried such a grudge, and that really they didn't have, you know, these statues, these other kinds of vestiges, didn't really have uh, a whole lot to do with, you know, post-Civil War 
uh, democratic politics. I mean, I mean, they do and they don't, but it doesn't really sort of explain the, the longevity and the, the power of that, that, con- that Confederate narrative. Um, and so I really wanted to, to figure out, uh, you know, the answer to this. You mentioned you grew up in Kentucky. Since I'll ask you later about the, the two Kentuckys, but what part of the state uh, did you grow up in? I'm from Lexington, so the, the center of the bluegrass. <laughs> and is that where you went to college? I went to uh, Center College, a small liberal arts college in Danville. Okay. So the um, uh, well, I guess a good place to to take this next would be to ask about Kentucky during the war itself. This. As you say, the, the, the ident- Confederate identity of the state you know, certainly begins after the war and strengthens, and in that sense differs from other places by strengthening in the late 19th and well into the 20th century. Um, I, I'll just throw this out. I can recall driving uh, into Kentucky for the first time from Michigan, where I grew up, uh, past Florence, uh, Kentucky, near near the border. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if it's still there, but they have the, the, the water tower. <laughs> yes. Is that still there? The, yes, which, the Florence Yall uh, water yeah. tower is still there, that's which apparently the, used to say Florence Mall, but that's the story that I've heard that it, exactly. for legal reasons they had to change the M to the Y and put an apostrophe in. So, so, so as you drive down from the north, you see this huge tower, Florence Yall, and <laughs> it... it, it it, it's a big welcome to the South banner, a big announcement. You are now in a different region of the country. Uh, now, you point out in, in your book that, that Kentucky was Southern long mm-hmm. before the war, which is different from saying it's Confederate. Right. Uh, so before the war, Kentucky is, is clearly a Southern state. Uh, how do you, what marks it as Southern? Well, I'd, I'd say definitely it's, its dependence on and its relationship to the institution of slavery uh, is, you know, what for me is is the definitive feature of being Southern. And, you know, I know that there are scholars working out there now that sort of claim that, you know, Kentucky wasn't Southern. It was really Western, and it, it became Southern because of this Confederate sentiment or, you know, for this, that, and the other region. And, and I really do... Uh, do, and I'm certainly not the only scholar. Um, William Freeling, for example, um, has written a great book about 15 years ago uh, called The South Versus the South, which looks at the role of southern border states like Kentucky and Maryland and Missouri and, and the role that, that they play in fighting against the deeper south. Um, and so I do think that's an important distinction, though, because I, I do think it's important that uh, we realize that um, Southern, you know, southernness and the Confederacy aren't synonymous. I think that they've become synonymous after the war, but they certainly weren't during the war. And, and certainly, of course, Kentucky wasn't part of the Confederacy. Why did Kentucky stay in the Union? Well, uh, I know in hindsight, I think to a lot of us, uh, you know, we know we know what happens. We know about emancipation, um, and and you know, in hindsight, it seems like this was almost an inevitable uh, course of action, you know, for Lincoln and his advisors to, to take. But uh, to people in 1860 and 1861 and border and the border south, it, it was a fear of theirs. That's, that's for certain. But uh, a lot, there were a lot of very convincing uh, spokesmen uh, who really pushed this idea that uh, 
slavery was actually best protected by the Constitution, by staying within the Union. Um, and they also realized that they, they had a, you know, a different relationship with slavery um, and different commercial interests uh, than the deep southern states did. And so secession, um, in many ways, looked riskier to many white Kentuckians than it, it probably did to a lot of uh, people in the deeper south. And they also had these very uh, compelling and very, uh, you know, loud voices of people like Garrett Davis, of people like Warner Underwood, Brutus Clay, who are essentially arguing that uh, we want to protect slavery, but that's going to be best done within the Union. So, so none of these voices are saying that we, we agree with the emancipationist argument of the, uh, of the time. I, I was talking with uh, James Oakes at a, a conference two weeks ago, and he was, he was working on a book in which he says he argues that, that pretty much all of us have gotten it wrong up to now, that the Republican Party was, in fact, planning to emancipate from the start of the war, that, that the idea that you know, emancipation just grew up somehow mysteriously. He says it, it took a while to, to implement, but, but it was very clear to anyone looking that that was a long-term goal of the Republican Party and of Abraham Lincoln from the start of the war. Uh, if that's so, then the Kentuckians who, who chose to stay in the Union to protect slavery were missing, were missing something pretty obvious. Right. I mean, it, it does seem like that, but, I, you know, I don't, I don't think, um, and certainly I've found evidence where people who were espousing these unionist, conservative unionist views, and many of them, I mean, most of them were slave owners themselves, um, saying let's stay within the union. Uh, they were having to fend off attacks uh, by, you know, by people who were essentially calling them abolitionists, and uh, that was the last thing in the world they wanted to be called. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I do think that um, during that time, a lot of people bought into what they thought was a very rational idea, a very sort of uh, safe idea that, that the Constitution and the federal government would protect slavery. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll be very interested to, to read Dr. Oves' work. But, I mean, I can certainly see, though, because the, in order for people to be calling these, these conservative unionists, abolitionists, Lots of people had to be thinking that abolition was a sure thing. And certainly, um, you know, in the, the 1860 election, I mean, uh, fewer than 1% of Kentucky voters voted for Lincoln because they did associate him with, with abolition. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that that's true. Um, but, but there really were these people who were, um, you know, not, not, you know, perhaps they were just duped, but, <laughs> but they really strongly believed that slavery would be, or hoped at least, that, that slavery would be protected. Well, and, and in some ways they were perhaps not wrong. They, they at least did bet on the winning horse, uh, uh, even if that horse didn't pull the wagon they were hoping for. We're going to take a short break now. We'll come right back. We're talking with Ann Marshall about creating a Confederate Kentucky. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk more about it on Civil War Talk Radio.
don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ann Marshall, author of Creating a Confederate Kentucky. It's uh, the story of how Kentucky became a loyal Confederate state in the years after the Civil War, after staying in the Union until 1865, but how it has changed culturally uh, to the present day and, and developed a an overtly Southern and overtly uh, Confederate heritage uh, in the post-war years. So in, in our first segment, we talked a bit about Kentucky during the war and why it chose to stay in the Union in the first place. And, uh, and I thought what was really struck me in, in all the comments you made, it was all about protecting slavery. It was there was no substantial body of, of Kentuckians that you describe uh, in the book that was the, saying we, we agree with the Republican cause. As you point out, only 1% voted for Lincoln. But there were many voices saying we should go with our southern sisters to protect slavery and others saying the best way to protect slavery is to stay in the Union. But it was all about protecting, not, not ending slavery. Right. And, and, and in a way, that those who said we should stay in the Union to protect it, at least we're right. Uh, uh, if we go with the losing side, we're going to lose all our slaves, which, of course, happened to the Deep South. If we go with the winning side, with the federal government, we have a chance of, uh, of, of the, the, the peculiar institution enduring. And uh, they weren't, so they weren't totally wrong, but, of course, it didn't, didn't work out that way. Right. Now, it, it, this begins to change. Uh, uh, so, so, so I guess Confederate loyalty, or Union loyalty, I should say, is very conditional then on the war being a war for Union and not a war for slavery. So that, that must have begun, begun to change during the war itself. Yes, it did. Uh, and I, I really found uh, so much evidence in letters um, and diaries from the Civil War period, um, you know, letters of Union soldiers who from Kentucky who really resented being, uh, you know, 
sort of abolitionist troops um, and, and sort of, you know, having to represent that agenda once the war does become one of emancipation. Um, you know, some people uh, quit the army. Um, some people go on fighting. Um, but what really, uh, really changes things um, for the worse, and they really become dismayed once Lincoln begins enlisting African-American troops. Um, and that, even more than emancipation itself, um, is, you know, really makes people, both civilians and, um, and, and uh, you know, union uh, army members, um, very upset. When I was researching the Army of the Ohio, which which fought in Kentucky at Perryville and other places, the uh, the soldiers from that army, who were mostly from the Midwest, uh, north of Kentucky, were also not interested in abolition at the start of the war. But I found a lot of them became abolitionized, became radicalized from in their encounters with slavery, even encounters in loyal Kentucky, just seeing slavery up front. Uh, turn them against the institution. Did you find any Kentucky soldiers becoming abolitionized by the war or, or, or turning yeah. against it? I did find a few who said that they didn't, you know, that they, they sort of became resigned to it, I guess is the best way I can say. I, I never saw anybody sort of say, uh, you know, who, who seemed to have been uh, you know, strongly pro-slave slavery beforehand, uh, sort of, you know, have some sort of, uh, you know, revelation. Um, but I did see some people just sort of becoming resigned and sort of taking a pragmatic approach and, and, and realizing, you know, that, that this really was weakening the Confederacy and, you know, that the, the added manpower to the Union Army was, you know, was, was very advantageous. Um, but, yeah, I never really did find anybody who... who uh, you know, was was sort of had this, you know, the, where the, the the scales fell from their from their eyes or anything like that. Which I, I mean, I suppose it would make sense given that they, if they'd grown up in Kentucky or lived there before the war, it's not as if they'd never seen the institution right. before. In contrast to someone from, say, Minnesota, who'd never right. seen an African American before, and, and then uh, uh, sees them in in conditions that belie the the propaganda that they'd been led to believe was, was how slavery looked. But after the war, then uh, I was surprised in, in your book how quickly the tables turn. And uh, it, it, a few weeks ago, uh, Judkin Browning was on the show, who uh, uh, you mentioned in your acknowledgments. Yes, my old colleague from, from graduate school days. He, uh, his new book is on uh, eastern North Carolina, uh, where I'm hanging out these days, and he observed uh, the same phenomenon in a smaller scale here on the coast of eastern North Carolina where Burnside's troops had occupied uh, the area for the entire war, that uh, civilians there were sympathetic to the Union during the war while there was money to be made from them, uh, but racial policy turned them further and further against the uh, uh, the, the federal government, and they were more Confederate after the war than, than before. But it, it was a, a drawn-out process, and what struck me in your book was how quickly it seemed to happen that, that the fighting hasn't even ended, and 
white Kentucky has gone Southern, has gone Confederate. Yes. Yeah, that that was definitely true. Um, and there really was, you know, there there is a lot of truth to this, um, you know, t- to the interpretation that... Um, that Kentuckians were very upset with, um, you know, the way federal military policy played out. Uh, Essentially, they felt like, you know, they had stuck their necks out to be loyal to the United States, and their, you know, everything that they stood for gets taken away anyway. Um, You know, the slaves uh, are enlisted, um, and, uh, you know, at at the beginning, uh, you know, the Union Army's policy was essentially to enlist only slaves of disloyal people, but of course that changes. And so then what happens uh, as the war is winding down um, and then when, when the war ends uh, and Reconstruction is in full swing other places, uh, you know, you're right when earlier you said they, they, got, they, they did choose the winning horse and that uh, it's because they remained loyal and they were not federally reconstructed after the war, like their states further to the south, that their conservative policies or conservative feelings really play out in a way that they can't play out in uh, states that are reconstructed uh, and in, unlike in, in other um, border states like, like Missouri and Maryland, there's no uh, Republican, there's not a strong enough Republican base. It's so small in Kentucky that they're never really within, in power, and so the, the Democrats really win the day uh, by the end and then after the war for a long time. What about, um, just wondering how, how contingent all this was, uh, what about General Stephen Burbridge? Did, if, if he had not been the Union commander during, the, during much of the war, would things have been different? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, certainly his policies are, were seen by many white Kentuckians as the most offensive. But I, I think that there was enough, um, you know, there was enough effort to uh, quell disloyal sentiment that came even before Burbridge um, and outside of him that, that uh, Kentuckians didn't like, uh, white Kentuckians didn't like, that I think even without... Burbridge, I think that 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 uh, you know there would have been mostly the same outcome. So, so even a very conciliatory commander could not have counteracted right. well, the underlying. It was really dynamic. impossible for for people to be you know both conciliatory, conciliatory and do their job. There was you know don't want to downplay that disloyal sentiment and the effectiveness. I mean, even of um, you know the women. Um, you know, you get Burnside issuing. General Order, uh, I think it was number, uh, now I've forgotten which number it is, where he essentially, um, you know, uh, starts basically saying, we're going to arrest, um, you know, women, uh, and he doesn't actually say that in the order, but he's basically saying anybody who carries mail for, who sews for, who feeds enemy, uh, the enemy, and these, you know, these are mostly women. Uh, who are doing this, and, you know, they're really having to crack down on um, not just, you know, um, disloyal males, but disloyal females. They're crossing, you know, what many people saw as gender boundaries. Um, and so I, I think that even beyond Burbridge and before Burbridge um, and after Burbridge, uh, I think that, um, you know, union policies really were sort of seen as draconian, but they, but they really had to be, you know, if you're thinking in terms of, uh, uh, you know, effectively fighting a war. 
Now, after the war, you point out that, that Reconstruction doesn't apply to Kentucky. It doesn't need to rejoin the Union because it never left. So there, it's theoretically exempt from Reconstruction. Does that mean that the Federal Army does not is not stationed in Kentucky during the Reconstruction years? Right. It's actually in, um, in I believe it was November of 66 that, um, that uh, Andrew Johnson... Uh, removes uh, martial law, and uh, now that said, um, because of that, um, and, and because Kentuckians, uh, white Kentuckians, are so uh, sort of intent on restoring the status quo, the racial status quo in the state, there was uh, just an incredible amount of uh, racial violence, um, and also some violence against uh, whites who were known to harbor um, Republican sympathies. And so because of this, the Freedmen's Bureau does come into, um, you know, does establish uh, itself in Kentucky for a short while uh, because things are so bad. Um, And, of course, white Kentuckians weren't happy about that either. Um, You know, they they thought, well, um, you know, we were loyal. Why are you uh, trying to, to, you know, reconstruct us? So uh, there was, as you say, an enormous amount of violence, and this this plays on into the uh, uh, into the after war years. Uh, well, I'd, I guess I'll jump ahead and ask about this this notion of violence as, as something peculiar to Kentucky that, that it, it gets a reputation as a peculiarly violent state. Uh, it, do Kentuckians welcome that? Is that a way, perhaps, of, of warning uh, the, the freedmen uh, and their allies that they're not welcome? Well, um, you know, I'd, I'd say perhaps some people. I mean, you know, the, the people that felt empowered by that violence probably welcomed it, but certainly most state officials uh, and then state spokesmen like Henry Watterson, for example, the editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal, uh, who who actually came to Kentucky right after the Civil War? Um, he lamented that that uh, you know he knew he was the sort of voice of even though um, you know he himself had fought in the Confederate Army for a while and he very much looked like the prototypical um, uh, Kentucky Colonel. He was very much the the voice of the sort of progressive New South um, in Kentucky, and and he realized how. Uh, that that perception of Kentucky as being so violent was really hurting uh, economic prospects and hurting the reputation of the state from the outside. So he very much worked against it, tried to compel state lawmakers to uh, to pass fir- firmer legislation um, against violence and, and lynching, um, but but they largely didn't didn't do so. I, I, you point out that lynching reached its peak in Kentucky in the 15 years after the Civil War, whereas throughout the rest of the South, it's in the late 19th century, the beginning of the Jim Crow era, 1890s, that you see lynching reach a crescendo elsewhere. But but in Kentucky, they, they, they skip the Reconstruction phase and go straight to the lynching. Right. Yeah, they they, they do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that sort of, uh, you know, one of the... The uh, sort of antecedents, I guess you could say, of 
the the lynching is, you know, it, it struck me uh, while reading some of the Civil War era diaries and letters that I saw was just how um, much people resented seeing African American men in Union uh, uniform and armed, you know, and there the the power relations in Kentucky are just, you know, um, you know, the, the state where slavery is still supposed to be legal, you know, during the war, um, it just, the bottom rail was on top. And, and so I think that um, really there, there's just a lot of symbolism in that and the way that people felt afterwards, um, you know, trying to negotiate new labor arrangements, uh, and uh, you know, try to trying to figure out um, you know what kinds of political and legal rights these uh, newly freed people were going to have. Um, you know, the violence was just uh, really one way of trying to you know essentially shut any of those possibilities down. It, it really is an interesting time when you look at Kentucky right after the war, uh, or in the last months of the war in 1865. I think you mentioned. Uh, the journalist Whitlaw Reed remarking on being served by slaves in a Kentucky hotel in 1865, uh, even after the war, because the Emancipation Proclamation never freed these slaves. The 13th Amendment hasn't been ratified yet. And so slavery is still legal at this time. So you've got armed black soldiers representing the federal government, fighting for freedom at this point, and people still legally held in slavery, and then a lot of people in a sort of limbo between these states. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen, who's in what condition. Uh, right. Uh, really, things were, were, were chaotic. They, they really were. And, and so violence is one solution to that, to, to impose this, uh, uh, this kind of violence. Now, one of the, well, you mentioned Henry uh, Watterson, who's a really interesting character. As you say, he, he, he's portrayed as the, the prototypical Kentucky colonel, uh, a southern spokesman type, a newspaper editor. But he's also, he's like Henry Grady, he's one of these New South people who wants the South to abandon its, its cotton-growing agricultural ways and move into the, into the 19th century or the, prepare for the 20th century and start diversifying its economic base and giving up uh, its nostalgia for slavery. But that doesn't mean he's interested in changing the racial hierarchy. He's very much behind that, is he not? Right, definitely. I mean, he was sort of, uh, you know, he bought into what you might call the polite racism. You know, he didn't want anything that that smacked of reactionary, white reactionary politics. And, and, you know, he didn't really have to worry about that, I think, in, in Kentucky, because the population of, of African Americans in, in Kentucky, um, you know, both after the war and then um, during the war. Well, for example, in 1860, uh, African Americans made up only 20% of Kentucky's population compared to, you know, most states further to the south, they, they made up a more substantial population. So the actual sort of, uh, you know, and, and that doesn't actually increase after the war. So the political threat, right, of for example, of black suffrage, um, and even the, the physical threat of having, um, you know, a, a, an African-American population that outnumbers a white population is not something that Kentucky had to worry about. Um, 
so I think that, that you know, he sort of was the voice of the more moderate, uh, you know, more moderate uh, Kentuckian um, on issues of race. Uh, and he certainly, you know, was, was very much preaching reconciliation, and he, he knew that uh, virulently racist rhetoric was no way to do that. Now, he's, he's the editor of Louisville uh, uh, Courier, and much of this reaction, uh, the, the white reaction to, to the events of the war and attempt to reestablish racial hierarchy, takes place in the, the middle part of the state. But there is, uh, as you call it in, in one of your chapter headings, two Kentuckys, uh, the mountains of the east, Mm-hmm. are uh, much different politically, agriculturally, socially, economically. Uh, they're, they're more of a piece with Western Virginia, which, of course, secedes from Virginia altogether. Uh, Eastern Kentucky is often portrayed as, as the unionist part of the state. Uh, do they buy into Confederate Kentucky in the late 19th, 20th century as well? Well, or, really, or is that a false image? To be right, sure. right. Yeah, no, they they actually came to you know very much embody, as I argue in the book, this alternative, uh, you know, unionist Kentucky. And this is coming at a time in the 1880s and 1890s when all of these you know journalists and writers are are um, discovering Appalachia, as they put it. You know, they're these um, people that have been sort of forgotten because they've been. Isolated in the you know in the rugged mountains, and um, they're really you know a hundred years behind technologically, and they're undereducated. And this is where we get a lot of our negative you know Appalachian stereotypes that are still around today. Really, are born in this era. Um, but you know, the same writers point out that what is so redeeming about these these mountaineers is that um, they're white, first of all, and second of all, they are. Um, they were loyal to the Union. And without these people, you know, uh, a lot of these journalists and writers argue, uh, without the people of eastern Kentucky, east Tennessee, western North Carolina, the South would have been wholly Confederate. That was, that was their, um, you know, their, their argument. And so, uh, and one of the reasons that, that they portray these people as being Unionist, um, you know, at the same time they're saying that they're um, completely Unionist, they're also... Um, saying that that the reason that they were is because there was no slavery in Appalachia, which of course isn't true. Um, And the the people were not wholly unionist. Um, So they're they're really, you know, constructing this this other myth there along with the um, Confederate Kentucky. There's this unionist Appalachia. And what I argue in the book is because uh, this unionism of these mountaineers becomes uh, it's because, you know, essentially these, these mountaineers are the other. They're the unusual. They're the abnormal, according to all of this writing. It actually sort of reaffirms the notion of a Confederate Kentucky, that the rest of the state is, you know, Confederate. So they're sort of underscoring um, that image, I guess, as they're creating this image of the Unionist uh, mountaineer. And, and uh, so comforting in its clarity, if, if not its accuracy. Right, right. We'll take another short break and come back talking more with Ann Marshall. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen 
and talk. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terween and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that'll keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Anne Marshall. She's the author of Creating a Confederate Kentucky. It looks at how Kentucky became the uh, 12th state, depending where you put Missouri, the 13th uh, state in the Confederacy, but only after the war. Uh, Subtitle, The Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State, shows us how how things changed in the years after the war. Uh, And we were just talking about uh, Appalachia and its role as as the the foil for Confederate Kentucky, uh, the the Unionists, the loyal Unionists of the Eastern Mountains. And I was particularly interested in the role you ascribed to Berea College, which uh, I I visited many times. I first uh, discovered old-time music there and became a, a big fan of traditional uh, Appalachian music through through their uh, concerts and uh, festivals and Christmas dance school and so on. So, uh, uh, how what? Tell our listeners what is Berea College and, and how did it affect this story? Sure. Well, um, Berea College was was founded in the uh, I believe it was the 1820s by John Fee. Um, who was a uh, minister who was an abolitionist, and he founded this school sort of in the the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, It's about, I'd say, about 40 miles uh, south and east of Lexington. Um, And, uh, you know, he had this vision of this sort of, uh, you know, interracial education happening uh, in the mountains, um, and so it was an unusual experiment to happen in a in a slave state like Kentucky. Um, it got support from another famous uh, Kentucky anti-slavery activist, uh, Cassius M. Clay, and um, so it was sort of this experimental uh, college, uh, and became this this voice of anti-slavery. Um, you know, before the Civil War, um, after the Civil War, it continued uh, uh, by you know biracial education, I guess you could put it, um, until the early 20th century when, when there was a law passed in Kentucky outlawing that. Um, but uh, it, after the war, it becomes a sort of one of the, the sort of few centers of unionist memory in Kentucky. Uh, it had a, a strong Grand Army of the Republic chapter. Um, and one of the reasons it becomes a strong uh, source of union memory is because the the uh, Berea uh, presidents and the trustees and the, the spokespeople use this uh, image of the loyal mountaineer uh, when they're going around uh, the Northeast trying to raise funds for the college and they sort of say, well, let's support um, you know because by this time the the by the late 19th century, early 20th century, part of Berea's educational 
uh, commitment had been to also educate these poor southern mountaineers <laughs> and enlighten them. You know, there was sort of this very um, paternalistic um, kind of uh, uh, aim there in some ways. And so um, they played on this unionist heritage to, to um, draw uh, sympathy and financial commitment from, from people in the north and the east. So uh, you, you mentioned union memory as, as something that is focused around this, uh, around Berea College in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, you needed a place to focus it because Confederate memory by this time uh, in the form of monuments and other things that swept uh, through the state. One of the things, one of, one of the really interesting things uh, that you describe is the uh, the way by the time 1895 comes around and the, the Grand Army of the Republic decides to hold a national meeting in Louisville, they are welcomed there as though entering a, a Confederate city. Yes, yes. The uh, rhetoric surrounding that reunion is just remarkable. I mean, you know, Louisville had been a federal supply base during the Civil War, but, you know, by 30 years later, um, you know, as they're hosting this GIR reunion, um, the, the, the occasion is seen as being significant because it's going to be the first time that a southern state holds, you know, holds such a reunion, and it's going to be this, um, you know, reconciliationist moment, um, you know, where, where the enemy, meaning the, you know, all these old Union veterans are going to come into, um, you know, to uh, southern territory, and they're going to shake the rebel by the hand, and, <laughs> and everybody's going to get along. In, in September 1862, Bragg wishes he could have gotten into Louisville. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's very much a Union stronghold at that time. There's no Confederate army there, but in 1895, the Union army is portrayed as the invader. Right. Uh, re- really a remarkable switch. Well, and then equally remarkable uh, is the the cultural switch that continues on into the, the 20th century and... Uh, Listeners will want to get the book and get the full details on all this, but uh, it's not enough for the process of of Confederate memory to to, uh, take place as sort of a folk movement or a popular movement, but to actually have the legislature passing laws by 1906 about how uh, the past is going to be remembered. Right. Right, and, uh, and talk about that. That that was really remarkable to me. Sure. Well, you're referring to um, a law passed in the state legislature in 1906 called the Uncle Tom's Cabin Law, and the United Daughters of the Confederacy um, in Lexington. But that, the effort was centered in Lexington, but it. UDC chapters all over the state um, essentially launched this effort to ban the traveling production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was one of the most famous traveling plays of the time uh, because they considered it racially incendiary. And, and some of this has to do with, with the fact that, of course, Stowe's, um, you know, a good bit of Stowe's book is set in Kentucky, so it, it particularly impugns um, Kentucky slaveholders, uh, you know, according to the, to the UDC. But, but I think what's important there is they're really, this is really um, more than, you know, a monument on, on a courthouse lawn. This really shows how, um, you know, people... How, how memory of the Civil War and memory of slavery really uh, can speak to or against the, the modern-day politics, which is something that you know I argue in, throughout the book, is that 
really this Confederate memory becomes a sort of blueprint, a modern blueprint for conservative racial, gender, um, and social politics in post-war Kentucky for decades and decades. And I think that that, that law, you know, is, is a perfect example of how people are, are fighting over the memory of the Civil War because it still matters to them. They don't want a, a play to be shown in their city in 1906 that, that portrays whites as being cruel slave owners and, and perhaps, um, you know, uh, incite, uh, you know, antagonistic uh, race relations, as they put it. Um, so, so I think that, that that more than anything shows how, you know, what we might think of ju- as, as just remembering a war really had political ramifications and social ramifications, um, you know, into the, the 20th century and still today, really. Well, well, sure. If you look at the way people are talking about the sesquicentennial, the governor of Virginia's proclamation that forgot to mention slavery last year, for example, mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly got into the headlines. The uh, I guess the irony of the the ban on the, the the Tom shows is that they were a a, a, a mockery almost of, of Stowe's original work, and, and right. they, they that's where we get the the negative Uncle Tom, the the cowtowing right. Uncle Tom's from the plays, not from the original book. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Listeners who want to know how Shirley Temple and the Little Colonel figure in all this are going to have to get a copy of the book for themselves and read it. It is called, and get the title exactly right, Creating a Confederate Kentucky, The Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State uh, by our guest today, Ann Marshall. Ann, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you again for having me. This is a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.